You're listening to Hidden History, and I'm your host, Ellis Ducci. If you know any way that we can improve our content for you, the listener, drop us a line at hiddenhistory.show forward slash contact. To catch up on all our past episodes and hear new ones every week, head on over to your Apple Podcast app, Spotify, or hiddenhistory.show and learn something new today. I'm going to include another warning in the beginning of this episode. This one is me saying that the contents of this episode might offend you if you think George W. Bush was a good president. But through Hidden History, I've always tried to address difficult and complex topics in an educational and informative way. If you want some nice digestible snippet of sanitized history, I don't know, go listen to Malcolm Gladwell or something, because maybe this isn't the show for you. This week, I'm going to talk about the most recent topic I've ever covered on this show, something that, if Spotify analytics are to be believed, is in the living memory of everyone that listens to this show. This week, we're going to talk about American war crimes in Iraq and Afghanistan. This is Hidden History, and you're listening to episode 47. B. Bush, Do Crimes. So, in planning out the flow of this episode, it's kind of difficult to decide where to start, not only because of the breadth of the issue, but because George Bush didn't just wake up one morning and say, hmm, I feel like committing war crimes today. Everything has a precedent, and since I don't really want to explain the entire causal chain, and I have enough respect for my listeners to not talk through every major event in American politics since the Reagan administration, side note, I'm just going to say this now and not revisit it, because that's not what this episode was about, but Ronald Reagan absolutely did treason, Iran-Contra was super-duper illegal, and was absolutely treason. So, the Reagan administration is potentially a topic for another episode, because there's a whole lot to unpack there. But I said I was just going to say to move on, so let's do exactly that. Since I don't want to spoil future episodes in the setup for this one, I want to actually work backwards from the present in talking about the depth and severity of the war crimes committed by the Bush administration. Right now, as we speak, there are people working to rehabilitate the image of George Bush. To make him seem harmless, depicting him as a goofy grandfather who paints and is friends with Michelle Obama. That rehabilitation is a very dangerous thing, because it changes the way that we remember history, and lets people get away with grave injustices. So in this episode, I'm largely going to talk about why it is impossible to resuscitate the image of George Bush, and why attempting to do so would be an incredible mistake. On December 10th, 2015, an article appeared in Time magazine. It was written by Francis Fukuyama, and called Donald Trump makes George W. Bush look like a paragon of statesmanship. In it, Fukuyama pines for the bygone years of the Bush administration, laying the general claim that next to Donald Trump, any former president looks like an angel. George Bush was better at acting presidentially, but he was not a better president. So let's get into the why. On September 14th, 2001, Congress passed the AUMF, or Authorization for the Use of Military Force Against Terrorists. 
It granted the president broad authority to wage war against terrorist groups and their, quote, associated forces, a term which is never defined in the wording of the text. The authority from the AUMF was used to justify the coalition invasion of Afghanistan under Operation Enduring Freedom on October 7th of that year. Two months and ten days later, by December 17th, Taliban forces in Afghanistan were thoroughly routed and their governmental grip disintegrated. But Operation Enduring Freedom did not end. It went on for another 13 years, until December 28, 2014, when Barack Obama announced that he was ending the operation. But don't be confused. This wasn't an end to the war in Afghanistan. All those soldiers stayed right where they were, because the only thing that Obama really did was change its name. It is now known as Operation Freedom Sentinel, and continues on to this day, just over 18 years later. The American war in Afghanistan was and is horrible foreign policy, but we're here to talk about war crimes, and to do that we need to talk about what came right after Afghanistan, the 2003 invasion of Iraq. My fellow citizens, at this hour, American and coalition forces are in the early stages of military operations to disarm Iraq, to free its people, and to defend the world from grave danger. It began on March 19th, and the audio you're hearing behind me is George Bush addressing the nation to announce the new war. The authority for the invasion came from the Authorization for Use of Military Force Against Iraq Resolution of 2002, which Congress passed in October of that year. In it, the resolution stated that the war was justified because the Iraqi government was repressive, because the United States was obligated to install a democratically elected leader, because the governments of Kuwait and Saudi Arabia wished to see Saddam Hussein removed from power, and, of course, because Iraq had not complied with UN's weapon inspectors who sought out their supposed, quote, weapons of mass destruction. Saddam Hussein possessed no such weapons, and the Bush administration knew this. The invasion of Iraq was built on purposeful lies. War on terror was no longer a defensive war, if it ever even was one. American expansion into Iraq was illegal and was driven only by imperialistic motives. But time and time again, George Bush declared that we didn't feel as though America should be held to international legal standards. In 2001, when Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld told Bush that retaliatory war was in fact illegal, that military action was only allowed in the prevention of future attacks, Bush responded, quote, I don't care what international lawyers say, we are going to kick some ass. In 2002, Pierre Richard Prosper, the American ambassador for war crimes, who was personally appointed by George Bush, expressed the following, quote, the war on terror is a new type of war not envisaged when the Geneva Conventions were negotiated and signed. We should look at all international documents to see whether they are compatible with this moment in history. We should look at them now and look at them again in the future, in 20 years' time, in 50 years' time. In January 2002, Alberto Gonzalez, the White House chief legal counsel, expressed to President Bush that the rules of the Geneva Convention were, quote, quaint and outdated, and that Bush could, quote, preserve his flexibility by not adhering to the Geneva Accords at all. 
The Bush administration said that it had found loopholes in the convention that allowed American armed forces to circumvent the convention. The terrorists they were fighting, by their logic, had not signed the Geneva Convention either individually or as a cohesive group. And because they didn't sign it, America didn't have to obey it. The thing is, there is no reciprocity clause in the Geneva Convention. The agreement binds all signatories to a certain set of standards, no matter the signatory status of their enemy. And so, what was the cost of the lying, the legal sidestepping, the stripping of protected rights to treatment? It was indiscriminate scorched-earth war, where American forces flattened civilian cities on a whim. Indeed, as is the case with every war, the government tells the people that combatant deaths far, far outnumber civilian deaths. In Iraq and Afghanistan, this is far from true. From 2003 to 2019, American casualties have numbered 4,574. Civilian deaths resulting from both direct violence and the residual effects of the war, such as disease and infrastructural collapse, are estimated to be as low as 180,000 and as high as half a million. But wait, there's more. At high-security sites like Guantanamo Bay and Iraq's Abu Ghraib prison, the military blocked groups such as the Red Cross, Amnesty International, and Human Rights Watch from having access to prisoners. The denial of humanitarian aid to prisoners of war is a war crime. Without outside eyes on the prison, Abu Ghraib became hell on earth. Prisoners were dragged naked across the floor with a leash around their necks. They were smeared with human shit. They were raped with broomsticks and flashlights and forced to perform oral sex on other prisoners. Female prisoners became pregnant as a result of their rape by Abu Ghraib guards. Prisoners were beaten with metal batons in areas that were already injured. They were urinated on. They were bitten with venomous snakes and dragged naked across the floor with a rope attached to their penis. They were made to crawl naked around the prison while guards rode on their back like horses. They were made to strip naked and form human knots and pyramids. They were moved from cell to cell every few hours, sometimes for months, so that they could never sleep. They had phosphoric acid poured on them. This list, however long, is not exhaustive. These monstrous actions were all performed by real people, by the guards at Abu Ghraib, and they did it all with a smile. The cover photo for this episode was taken at Abu Ghraib on November 4th, 2003. It shows Sabrina Haram smiling and giving a thumbs up mere inches away from the corpse of a man who was just tortured to death. There are, of course, many more photos, the vast majority of which are incredibly graphic and show the incredible cruelty that we are capable of. One of the most famous of these images you have undoubtedly seen. It shows a hooded man, now known to be Abdu Hussein Saad Faleh, standing on a cardboard box with his arms outstretched. From under the dirty blanket that covers his torso, a series of thin wires snake out and climb the wall behind him. They are electrodes attached to his fingers, toes, and penis. He was made to stand on that box for an hour. But when looking through these photographs, the one I thought was the most unsettling had no prisoner in it at all. It's a simple photo of two people. A woman seated in a plastic lawn chair is beaming a bright smile at the camera. 
A man is standing directly behind her, leaning down with his head on her shoulder, a mischievous grin on his face. The subjects of this photo are Lindy England and Charles Grainer, a husband and wife team who helped lead the torture at Abu Ghraib. In the photo, if you did not know who they are, you could be forgiven for thinking they were just a happy couple. The contrast between the nature of what they did and their attitude is only made more jarring by the fact that they enjoyed their work. To this day, both England and Grainer stand by what they did behind the walls of Abu Ghraib even after they both went to prison for it. In 2014, Janice Karpinski, the commanding officer at Abu Ghraib, revealed that 90% of the inmates were innocent of the crimes of which they had been accused, and the military knew this before they had even brought them into custody. They merely needed people to serve as fodder for the other ten. The conditions at the prison became public knowledge in April 2004, and reactions from American conservative outlets were, quite frankly, despicable. Rush Limbaugh said on his popular radio show that, quote, This is no different than what happens at the Skull and Bones initiation, and we're going to ruin people's lives over it, and we're going to hamper our military effort, and then we are going to really hammer them because they had a good time. You know, these people are being fired at every day. I'm talking about people having a good time. These people, you ever heard of emotional release? You ever heard of emotional release? Another conservative radio personality, Michael Savage, thought that we actually hadn't gone far enough, stating on his show that, quote, we need more of the humiliation tactics, not less. The Bush administration maintained that the torture at Abu Ghraib was the result of a few bad apples, as opposed to broader government policy. This, surprise, surprise, was not true. In December 2004, a series of FBI emails were revealed to the public that made multiple references, 11 to be exact, to an executive order signed by President Bush that allowed the use of extraordinary torture techniques. It turns out, too, that Lieutenant General Ricardo Sanchez, the most senior American officer in Iraq, had expanded on the permissions granted by this order, allowing interrogation with dogs, extreme temperatures, and sleep and sensory deprivation. In 2006, that same commander that would go on to admit the overwhelming innocence of Abu Ghraib detainees said that she had seen a signed letter from Defense Secretary Rumsfeld permitting civilian contractors to use torture. It turns out, unsurprisingly, that the inhumane conditions at Abu Ghraib were not the result of a few bad apples, but the intentional result of the Bush administration's policy towards prisoners and its attitude towards international law. It's funny. Producing this episode feels somewhat subversive, like I'm saying something that I shouldn't be, something that's going to get me in trouble. That feeling comes from, for younger generations, the dissonance between what they were taught of the war on terror and its reality. For older audiences, it comes from the dissonance between memories of the Bush administration and his current rehabilitation. I think that it's important to note at this point that this episode is not a partisan hatchet job to defame George Bush, but rather it's a broader critique of how the American political establishment functions, framed through the permitted and forgiven actions of George Bush. We knew these things were happening, but we did nothing. It's easy to do what Bush did, 
and claim that these extraordinarily cruel and illegal actions are the result of a few people spoiling for the rest of us, that's not true. That's a blame-shifting tactic used by people who don't want to be held accountable for their actions. For a lot of people, especially the run-of-the-mill neoliberals who have been complicit in Bush's rehabilitation, the notion of George Bush as a war criminal is absurd and unthinkable. They'll often counter such notions with a smug response like, well, if Bush is a war criminal, then so is Obama. It's at times like this, when people come so close to having some great realization about the reality of U.S. imperialism and the impact of the Marshall State. Unfortunately, the people that make such claims do so facetiously. To them, George Bush is infinitely preferable to Donald Trump because even while Bush presided over human suffering on a staggering scale, he was better at acting the part. The notion that any of our leaders or government employees could be complicit in war crimes is farcical, because we're Americans, right? And Americans are never the bad guys. Well, if after the evidence I've produced in this episode, you still don't believe that George Bush is a war criminal, then that's okay, you can be wrong. In 2011, the Kuala Lumpur War Crimes Tribunal, designed to be an alternative to the International Criminal Court, tried George Bush and Tony Blair in absentia for crimes against the peace. Both were convicted. A year later, in May of 2012, after heeding testimony from former prisoners at Abu Ghraib, the tribunal convicted George W. Bush, Vice President Dick Cheney, Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld, John Yu, J. Bybee, Alberto Gonzalez, William Haynes II, and David Addington, who all served the administration in a legal capacity of conspiracy to commit war crimes. The vote was unanimous. This episode is not meant to defame George Bush. He did that to himself. This episode is a critique of American foreign policy. It's a critique of how the sausage is made with the sausage in this case being a nice stand-in for American imperialism. And if you think that I'm a partisan hack, that's fine, I guess. I don't really care. I think that the fact that I have this platform means that I have a social responsibility to sincerely educate and critique. History is political. History is divisive. History can challenge your beliefs. And history can hurt your feelings, especially if you're a war criminal. I've presented this issue to you using my own narrative voice, and as a result, my feelings towards this subject bleed through into my writing. But in this episode, I've only presented you with well-researched facts. I'm not going to tiptoe down the middle and give you a centrist political take on American war crimes. I would rather shut down my show than make such a compromise. The idea that the Bush administration broke international law with its wars in the Middle East is not just some kooky idea that I came up with. It's a pretty widely accepted notion. I'm not going to be kind or forgiving or nostalgic about the Bush years, because being nice to some people is inherently cruel to others. Rehabilitating the oppressor is inherently cruel to the oppressed. Right now, as we speak... There are people working to rehabilitate the image of George Bush, to make him seem harmless, depicting him as a goofy grandfather who paints and is friends with Michelle Obama. We can't let that happen. Thanks for listening. 
This is Ellis Tucci at Hidden History. Signing off. We must stop the terror. I call upon all nations to do everything they can to stop these terrorist killers. Thank, Thank you. you. Now watch this drive. <laughs>